The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Wednesday edition of PFTPM, the third day of the PFT Live hiatus. We'll be back July something, 24, 27, something like that. We'll be back when we're back. Until then, it's PFTPM. And there continue to be some things to talk about in the National Football League, even though nothing is officially going on. This is the window when coaches tend to sleep with one eye open. Used to be worse in the past when players would potentially get in trouble away from the confines of the structure that was always the concern i heard 15 years ago we have structure the players are here for the offseason program they'll be back for training camp in between there's five six weeks of no structure we're concerned they're going to get in trouble and there was a period of time where they were getting in trouble on a fairly regular basis then came the ray rice fiasco of 2014 the efforts to beef up the personal conduct policy that went a long way toward getting players to understand the connection between off-field behavior and not being allowed to play in the national football league so it has reduced these issues these arrests these incidents but when they happen now they're even more noticeable and today's top item as we wait for further word is this news that Tyreek Hill over the weekend at a marina a boating excursion, a fishing trip in South Florida, allegedly struck an employee in the head. Now, one of the reports indicates that the employee isn't pressing charges, but that's irrelevant to the National Football League. The league can look into this under the personal conduct policy if it so chooses. If the employee doesn't want to cooperate, it makes it a little bit more difficult. But if there's video, doesn't matter. And we know there's cameras everywhere nowadays. Everyone is big brothers, stationary cameras, security cameras. If there is some video that would emerge of Tyreek Hill striking someone in the head, doesn't matter if the individual chooses not to cooperate with the league. And of course, the league has no way to force someone who isn't an employee of the league or a team to cooperate with anything. But if they get the video, and if they don't, TMZ will. We know how that goes. We know it from Ray Rice. That's when Tyreek Hill is potentially in a predicament with the league. We've asked the league for comment on this Tyreek Hill news and haven't heard back yet. We'll follow up. A lot of times, as anyone who follows what we do here has learned, we've got to ask once or twice or three times to finally get no comment or some comment. So we'll keep asking because it's relevant. It's the product of multiple news reports. But his history, even going back to the time at Oklahoma State, when he pleaded guilty, Remember that? Pleaded guilty to assaulting his then-pregnant girlfriend. Even though that happened before he was in the NFL, there's nothing the NFL could ever do about it. Those past incidents become potential enhancements for punishment that would be levied against him for things that happen when he's in the league. There was that incident from four years ago where it bubbled up right as the draft was getting started. Remember that, 2019? It looked bad. Allegations of some sort of 
discipline that was imposed on his son and a broken arm, and it never really turned into anything, but it really felt like it was going to. What was looming then was the idea that whatever punishment would happen for what's occurred now gets enhanced because of the things that happened in the past. So that's the reason for Dolphins fans to be concerned. Whatever happens now, whatever they can prove now, whatever the league would do now, that punishment potentially gets enhanced by the thing that happened years ago that the NFL could never actually punish him for. So we'll keep an eye on these developments as they unfold. It's obviously relevant and it's more conspicuous than it would have been in past years because it's one of the rare things to happen during the dead spot between offseason programs and training camp. Although we're only a few days in and there's already been two. The other hot spot in New England with Jack Jones, the Patriots cornerback who had a backpack that went through security that had two loaded guns in it. He's facing multiple charges with mandatory minimum sentences. He was arraigned yesterday. He pleaded not guilty. That's what always happens. Rarely, if ever, does the lawyer for an accused stand up at the arraignment and say, yep, he did it. Why are we even here? Why are we wasting everyone's time? Let's just conclude this now. He did it. Of course, he's going to plead not guilty. Then the lawyer chastised the media and social media for painting him as a wannabe thug, I think was her term, and almost got him fired by the Patriots, as if the media and social media is going to influence what the Patriots do. The Patriots' actions are going to be influenced by what Jack Jones did. And look, I didn't think that he was trying to slip a couple of loaded Glocks through the TSA five hole here. Anybody that's flown knows that you know, if you got a gun in your bag that is going on the conveyor belt through the the X-ray device that shows the presence of metal and the shape of the metal in your bag, I don't think anybody in their right mind thinks they're going to secretly get a gun through security that way. The, the question is, and this gets back to the issue of responsible gun ownership. Now, you got a right. You got a right to have a gun. Not questioning that. But there are obligations that go along with that right. You better better follow the laws in the jurisdiction you're in as it relates to where you take the gun, how you possess the gun, how you secure the gun, the various enhancements you may have to the gun that possibly don't comply with the laws of the jurisdiction you're in. You're on notice of all that stuff. Even if you're not a lawyer, you need to know what the laws are of the state where you have that gun in, and you can run afoul of those requirements. And you need to know where your gun is. You have an obligation as a responsible gun owner to know that bag that you sometimes take with you on trips. Oh, wait, that's also the bag I keep my loaded Glocks in. Not one, but two. I sometimes have my two loaded Glocks in that bag, probably not a bag that I should take with me to the airport. And if I'm going to take that bag with me in which I carry my two loaded Glocks, I probably should remove from the bag my two loaded Glocks. So... These are basic, basic common sense, fundamental requirements to impose on somebody who chooses to own guns, chooses to carry them around loaded, chooses to have them in bags that may leave the house with the loaded Glocks in them. And these are the consequences that arise. Look what happened to Plexico Burris. Now, he knew he had a gun in the waistband of his pants when he went to a Manhattan nightclub back in November of 2008 and it accidentally went off and shot him hole in and hole out of his leg and could have killed somebody and fortunately didn't. But he did a hard time because he took that gun into a place where that gun shouldn't have been. The difference is he deliberately knew he was doing it. But at the end of the day, here's the point. 
There is no difference. If you take that gun with you, if you're going to own that gun, you're on notice of wherever that bag is, that satchel, that briefcase, that suitcase, whatever it is, you better be damn sure you know where your guns are. Is it too much to ask that people keep track of their guns? I think that's a minimum requirement of having them. You better know where they are at all times and you better secure them and you better be damn sure you don't walk out of your house with a bag that has two loaded Glocks in it. And if you do, you suffer the consequences. You know, common sense is getting thrown around a lot as it relates to the gambling policy. Why do we need to educate the players? It's commonsensical. Well, you know what? It really isn't commonsensical because common sense, when you look at what's happening in the NFL right now, would suggest, hey, we should be allowed to gamble. The NFL is making millions off of gambling sponsorships. The owners have stake in the sports books. There are a bunch of mixed messages and hypocrisies that the NFL needs to cut through and make it clear to the players what they can and can't do. And the NFL is, is sensitive to the criticism that they've gotten about the education of players or lack thereof when it comes to gambling. How do we know that? Because they had a media conference call yesterday aimed at thumping their chest and letting the world know, here's everything we're doing when it comes to educating players. We've got it under control. Don't blame us, blame them. We're telling them everything they need to know. If they can't comply, it's not our fault. It's their fault. That's the message they're trying to send. And as further proof as to how sensitive they are about this, and look, I didn't write about this, and I wasn't going to bore anyone with the details, but I assume anybody who's taken the time to listen to this probably would be interested in the details. They had this media conference call yesterday, and I keep seeing different reporters tweeting about it, writing about it. A pretty broad array of reporters were invited to participate in this conference call. And we weren't. The one outlet that has been banging the drum about how important it is to properly educate the players, about what the NFL is getting wrong when it comes to not just educating the players, but explaining to the public how it works. Remember last week we pointed out that the head of PR, Jeff Miller, was on Good Morning Football on NFL Network and just glossed over the fact that there's two dramatically different sets of rules. For players, you can legally wager when not at work. For non-players, you can't bet on anything, anytime, anyplace, anyhow. And I'm starting to hear from people who are aware of folks who have been pushed out quietly from the NFL and from various teams for things that we would look at and say, you fired him for that? You fired him for being involved in a March Madness bracket for money? You fired him for, for, for being involved in this? So there's a lot there to properly understand. And there's a lot there that the NFL needs to do to inspire confidence in people who have a stake in this. See, this is why I give a crap about this. If there is a major controversy that truly undermines the best interest of the NFL, that hurts me because I cover the NFL. If there's something that happens that gets people to say, I'm done with the NFL, that, that, that kind of, you know, it, it, yeah, I, and I'm, I'm being as candid and transparent as I can be. I want people to be interested in the NFL. I spend my life following, covering, writing about, talking about, analyzing, assessing the NFL. If all of a sudden people say, I'm done with the NFL, it's rigged, NFL rigged. We see that trend from time to time. Oh, the NFL, you can't trust the product. You can't trust it. It's all scripted. It's all rigged. It's all predetermined. There's corruption. We're trying to help them avoid 
getting into a spot where it is a major and massive cleanup on aisle five as they deal with the aftermath of the controversy. They deal with any efforts by legislators to create new rules, to create new agencies that would have regulations that would control the NFL and make it harder for them to do business. And also prosecutors out there, ambitious prosecutors who understand the bigger and bigger the shield gets, the greater it can help someone's career by taking the shield down, by exposing this underbelly of potential corruption and malfeasance and impropriety that I'm not sure they're as concerned about as they need to be. So, so they have this conference call yesterday and they push out more talking points. And of course, the people who were invited now, for the most part, I haven't seen everything everyone's written. I haven't seen it all, but I've seen a lot of propaganda getting pushed. I think it's important and it's our shared duty as people who cover the league and care about the league to be willing to say, you know what, you know what? Maybe you could do this a little bit better. It still astounds me, for example, in the six rules that they communicate to the players, they never make it abundantly clear that if you are in a jurisdiction where gambling is not legal, never bet at all. They're so hung up on the don't bet at work. If you're in California, if you're in Florida, if you're in Texas, if you work there, if you live there, if you are there and you're wagering on anything, you're breaking the law. And I don't know why they, they, they want to keep that, that distinction under wraps, why they won't just come out and say it. I really do believe that they're so concerned about the obvious hypocrisies in this entire situation. Once they climbed in bed with the sports books, it makes it difficult, if not impossible, for them to have any true moral authority when trying to tell others what to do. I think that's the problem. And it speaks to the humanity of the individuals who are in these jobs. They recognize at some point it is a load of horse crap for them to take and take and take millions from the sports books and then say to everyone employed by the teams in the league, you can't do this. Do as we say, not as we're doing. You can't go out and spend your discretionary income on gambling, even though everyone else can in states where it's legal. You can't do it because we say so, but we're going to take all this money from the sports books at the same time. They recognize they're in a difficult spot here, and it makes it hard for them to properly lead the way they need to. And should it really surprise anyone? We've shared the quotes in the past from the commissioner back in 2009 when Delaware was trying to fight the federal law that prevented states other than Nevada from having legal sportsbook operations. The quotes from the commissioner were so clear and so strong that when that federal law was finally struck down in 2018, I thought he'd have to resign. There's no way you can reconcile it. It was Jay Monahan type about face that we saw a couple of weeks ago when the PGA Tour and Live Golf settled their differences and all of a sudden Jay Monahan's all in with the Saudi investment in American golf. That's how bad it was. And that, that turmoil is still there, I think. They understand that, that they are in a difficult spot where they're profiting from gambling on one hand and they're trying to police their workforce on the other when it comes to using the very product from which they're so greatly profiting. The best example I could come up with was the other day when I talked about the Olive Garden. If the Olive Garden becomes a major sponsor for the NFL, if members of NFL ownership have massive stakes in the Olive Garden franchise, and you tell all the employees they can't eat there, it's going to be kind of hard to balance those two things. And that's where we are when it comes to gambling in the NFL. So bottom line, 
and I, I've registered my complaint with the NFL and I, I've gotten an explanation as to why we weren't invited, but at least it confirms for me that we weren't invited. And uh, uh, I, I don't know whether they think that's going to make us less inclined to cover the story. I don't know what the end game is in keeping us out other than they just didn't want any potentially pointed questions to be posed to someone who would have a difficult time providing an answer that properly tiptoes through this minefield of hypocrisy when it comes to how much money the NFL makes from gambling and how the NFL goes about telling people that it can't engage in the very thing that the NFL is making so much money from. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. All right, let's get to some questions. PFTPM Posse, always at the stop of the top of the stack or the stop of the tack, as the case may be, since I follow that account. If the Jaguars win and get the free $1 billion from taxpayers to fund a billionaire, will the NFL put whatever team is up next for a new renovated stadium in the one or two London home game spot on the schedule to try to scare that team city into coughing up free money for billionaires program? Look, that becomes the, the question that's kind of hanging out there. If the Jaguars get a $2 billion renovated stadium and entertainment district, will they stop playing games every year in London? Now, the bottom line is they make more money from that one game in London than they would make from that extra game in Jacksonville. It's one of the reasons why they do it. It's one of the reasons why some teams have no qualms about giving up home games for Wembley Stadium or Tottenham Hotspur Stadium in London or Germany. They make more money that way. Other teams won't give up a home game because they won't make more money from their home game than they would playing a game in, in England. So I think Jacksonville will stop playing a home game every year in London when it is more profitable to play that extra home game in Jacksonville. Otherwise, they'll just keep going. But to the extent the NFL is serious about putting a team there, and, and who knows, maybe they just dangle the carrot every year. Maybe they're going to continue to talk about the possibility of two teams in London and four teams in Europe. And, you know, that's something the commissioner said last October, the possibility of a European division with four teams. Maybe that's just idle talk that's aimed at keeping the interest up in that one month a year when the NFL is playing those games overseas. I don't know. But if, if they let the Jaguars keep playing at Wembley every year, a home game after they have their renovated stadium, maybe the message is, you know what? We, we probably recognize that the way to go is just bring games over every year. Every year, different teams. Every year, different games instead of a home team that plays its games out of London or Germany or wherever. But we'll see. We'll see. They keep, they keep 
acting like it's going to happen until it happens. It's easy to be skeptical about it, but I still think that it's something that they would like to do and they'd like to tie it in with the expansion of the National Football League. PFT PM policy again with your draft lottery suggestion. Wouldn't teams that know they have no real shot at the Super Bowl tank at the end of the year to get a ball in the draft lottery for the number one overall pick? It might be worse because it would impact the playoffs potentially. I'd like to think that a team that has a chance to make the playoffs will do everything in its power to get to the playoffs because we've seen time and again, once you get to the playoffs, anything can happen. I'd like to think that would be the appropriate dividing line, that a team would not sacrifice a chance to go to the playoffs for a one in 18 shot at the number one overall pick in the draft. I'd like to think that's the case. I don't know. Maybe there would be some dysfunctional organization out there that says, you know what? We're going to get blown out in the wild card round anyway. We're going to be the seventh seed. We're going to go get destroyed by the two seed. Why do we want to go to the playoffs when we could just miss the playoffs and potentially get the number one overall pick? So that is a potential flaw. I'll admit that there could be a team out there that would gladly surrender getting to the playoffs for a one in 18 shot at the number one overall pick. Although... I tend to think that, that that would be a tough one to sell because, again, anything can happen once you get a seat at the playoff table. We have seen it occur time and again. So that would be my hope. And again, it's never going to get to that point. It doesn't matter. They're never going to do it. They won't do it. They're going to keep doing what they do, and they're going to keep ignoring the fact that there is a real business incentive for the bad teams to be as bad as they possibly can be because it puts them in best position to get the best possible players in the next draft. One more from PFTPM Posse before we move on. If what we believe, which is that the Eagles found out that Jonathan Gannon was prepping more for his interview with the Cardinals instead of for the Super Bowl, does that mean teams only value a Super Bowl win as much as a swap of third-round picks? I think you're probably getting a little too granular with this. I think the NFL just had a fire that they needed to put out, and this was the way to put it out quickly. So the Eagles wouldn't run their mouths about what happened, and they could brush it under the rug. And that was just the compromise in that moment that they found was acceptable to just move on. As Paul Tagliabue, the former NFL commissioner, always said, all's well that ends. They just wanted it to end. I don't think there's any precedential value from this. I don't think it tells us what teams think a Super Bowl is worth. I think it was just the way to end this so everyone could move on and so that no one would know how deep that rabbit hole goes and how much the tampering by the Cardinals may have undermined the integrity of the outcome of a Super Bowl victory. At court's decision, does Matt Arise's defamation suit against his accuser's lawyer and vow to never settle under any circumstances speed up or slow down his path back to the NFL? I think it depends. You've got the existing civil litigation against Ariza, and you've got his vow that he made to Andrea Kramer of Real Sports with Brian Gumbel on Tuesday that he will sue Dan Gillian, the lawyer who has filed this gang rape lawsuit against Matt Ariza. I think the key is... That Now, what we previously had heard is Ariza isn't going to settle under any circumstances because he needs to win that case in order to fully remove the cloud that hangs over him. I think some teams understand that, that the cloud is going to be there no matter what, and we're fine with it. It all comes down to what a team is willing to tolerate. The Jets have already worked him out. And Kramer said last night, the Jets, if they need him, if there's an injury, they'll bring him in. She believes someone's going to sign him to a practice squad. I, I think that 
What's really going on here, and Ariza spoke to it kind of indirectly. I think that that it would be wise for him to just settle this if he can and be done with it and just move on. I think there is something to be said, as we just mentioned, all's well that ends. There's something to be said for moving on from this and and just waiting for someone to give him an opportunity. He wants to be able to sue Dan Gillian. And what he said to Andrea Kramer in the interview that aired last night that got my attention was, under no circumstances am I waiving my right to sue Dan Gillian. So it tells me that there's been a proposal to settle and that it includes a waiver by Ariza of any claims he would have against his accuser and against her lawyer, and he refuses to do that. So I think there's more that needs to play out. The existence of litigation could cause some teams to say, we're just going to wait till this is over. Other teams may view it differently. I really do think it comes down to the team, their understanding of the potential PR consequences, right, wrong, or otherwise, and the basic reality that we're talking about a punter. How far do you want to stick your neck out at a position where the supply far outweighs the demand? The reality is, though, we've seen that this guy can be a pretty damn effective punter. There's a good punter out there that remains unemployed because of this stain, because of this cloud, this uncertainty. And it uh, doesn't make it right. It just is what it is. And this will be part of the damages he can collect if he's able to prove that there was some wrongdoing done by the lawyer representing this alleged victim. They had evidence available to him that he ignored, that he's lying about what actually happened, deliberately disregarding the truth. It could get very interesting. And it could be that Dan Gillian, his firm and or his malpractice or other insurance provider ends up paying a lot of money to Matt Ariza that he otherwise would have earned in the NFL. At Quiguck of the new offensive coordinators this season, who do you think is under the most pressure to deliver in their first season? I think it has to be Todd Monken. I don't think it's Monken. I, I, because the, the offensive coordinators to me that typically are under the most pressure are the ones that take over an offense on a team where the coach is kind of on the hot seat. So I'd look at the Chargers. I think Kellen Moore is under a lot of pressure because if it doesn't work this year, it could be the Chargers finally decide we need an offensive head coach. We need to move on from what we're doing. It's not working. And look at what the final act of the 2022 season was for the Chargers, blowing that huge lead in Jacksonville. I think it puts a ton of pressure on Kellen Moore to get the most he can out of Justin Herbert. And then you think about where Moore came from. Mike McCarthy, the Cowboys coach, who's taken over play calling. I think it puts pressure on him. I think a lot of pressure on him this year to prove that he can do better. And they were 12 and 5 each, each of the last two seasons, but that they can do better with McCarthy calling the plays. And then we go up to Buffalo. Ken Dorsey, year two, clearly an issue with Stephon Diggs, a tenuous truce at best. What does Dorsey do to make the offense effective and get or keep? Stephon Diggs happy. So those are just three that I can think of that I would say are under a lot more pressure than Todd Munkin. Uh, let's see what else we have. I'm, I'm trying not to be repetitive of things we've talked about this week. I appreciate the question. Some of them are follow-up. Some of them are plowing old ground. As a, This is uh, at Fantasy Duffman. As a Texans fan, am I crazy? I probably am. For me to think the Texans will make the playoffs before the Browns will. I don't think either team will this season, but next season the path through the AFC South will be much easier than for the Browns. Well, it's easier for the Browns or the Texans this year because the Browns are dealing with the Bengals, the Steelers, and the Ravens. The Browns are the great unknown. If Deshaun Watson can get back to playing like he did in 2020 – 
then the Browns can be very good. They've got a good enough defense. They've got good pieces on offense. It all comes down to Deshaun Watson. Can he rewind the clock by three years? 2021, didn't play at all. 22, he played six late season games. Can he be the guy he was in 2020? I think if that's yes, then the Browns are in position to get to the postseason faster than the Texans. And look, what, what does C.J. Stroud become? That's another great unknown. But at least we know that Watson has the capacity to play well in the NFL. We don't know that yet with Stroud. John Kasich, what is the purpose of game day roster limits? Why not just allow teams to activate all 53 players on the roster? I think the idea is, because they all get paid. Everyone on the 53-man roster gets paid. This allows for the reality that a certain number of your players aren't going to be healthy. Okay, you can dress all 53, but I've got four or five guys who can't play anyway because they're injured. So one team that may have no one injured has 53 players in uniform. The other team has 48, 47, 46, depending upon injuries. So I think that's the goal there. The idea that we're going to assume that every team has or that most teams will have a certain number of guys who are too injured to play and the maximum number of players who can dress, we assume that's the players that will be healthy. But there have been occasions where teams just don't have 46, 47 healthy players, and they end up dressing fewer than the number on on the active roster. And that's when you get into what are we going to do by way of calling up players from the practice squad? What are we going to do by way of putting guys on injured reserve? Uh, but But I think it's all about ensuring that both teams have the same number of players in uniform. If you let all 53 dress, you're going to have a lot of games where teams don't have 53 players in uniform. Let's see what else we have here. Jay Harder tried. Why are the Lions so highly regarded in the NFC North? Seems like the Vikings should be holding the top spot. New defensive coordinator can't be worse than 31. Seems the wins should be more dominant this year. I mean, we'll see. There's there's a sense out there that the Vikings' wins last year were a lot of smoke and mirrors. The Lions came on strong late in the season. The Lions have a great offense. Their defense has question marks. They've become the darlings of the NFL. I think a lot of it is perception, not reality. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But look, do I think the Vikings won't contend at all this year? I think they'll contend for the division title. I don't know how good they'll ultimately be. And I don't think they know. Paul Allen and I, we're arguing about this on his KFAN show just before we got started. My argument and my position is that the Vikings are trying to lay the foundation to get a franchise quarterback. They haven't had a true year in and year out franchise quarterback since Fran Tarkenton. And if they thought it was Kirk Cousins, he would not be entering the last year of his contract with no opportunity by the Vikings to keep him from becoming a free agent in 2024. It's that simple. If they thought he was up there with Joe Burrow, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, no specific order, I'm just rattling off names, Lamar Jackson, Justin Herbert, Trevor Lawrence, Jalen Hurts, if they thought Kirk Cousins was in that, that category of quarterback, there is no way, there is no way they would allow him to embark on a season that has at the end of it no way for the Vikings to keep him around. They would have him signed to a new contract. That tells you. They don't think he's good enough to get them to where they want to be and that they seem to be in a mode, in my assessment, where they're willing to take a step back if it allows them to potentially get in position to get that franchise quarterback that they haven't truly had since Fran Targeting. All due respect, and I rattled off a bunch of names with Paul Allen, host Fran Targeting, Tommy Kramer, 
Wade Wilson, Sean Salisbury. I didn't mention Sean when I was rattling off the names with Paul. Everyone that came after that, you get into Jim McMahon, Warren Moon, Brad Johnson, Randall Cunningham. Good God. Who was after Cunningham? We get into Dante Culpepper, and then Culpepper gets injured, and it's revolving door after that. Tavares Jackson ends up being the guy, and then he wasn't. And then Christian Ponder and Joe Webb for a little period of time in there. And then Teddy Bridgewater and Brett Favre. How could I forget Brett Favre? He almost took him to a Super Bowl, but that was just for two years, one good year. So they want the guy that is going to be the year-in and year-out franchise quarterback, one of the top five, six, seven in the game. And I think the objective is whether they would admit it or not, and they never will get themselves in position where maybe they can trade up to get one of the top guys for 2024 and beyond. Uh, let's see what else we have here. Aaron Jaeger. Do you think it's more likely Aaron Rodgers has a season like 2020 Brady or 2022 Russell Wilson? I think Rodgers is going to be good. I think he will be. He's motivated. He's determined. He gets his motivation from that desire to stick it to the Packers. I think he will be buttoned up and he'll be fine. The only, the only caveat here is father time is undefeated. And Aaron Rodgers plays the game in a way that puts more stress and strain on an aging body than Tom Brady did. Tom Brady wasn't trying to run fast. He wasn't trying to make cuts. He wasn't trying to display athleticism that he's never possessed. He was just back in the pocket, throwing darts like he always does. Aaron Rodgers, we saw that happen already with the strained calf. This is a an age for him as he's approaching his 40th birthday, where when he tries to do the things he used to do without any type of aches or pains or strains, it could happen. That's the one thing that I'm going to be curious about as the season approaches. David Marks 57, if Josh Harris has the money and Dan Snyder is willing to sell, why are the owners NFL dragging their feet? What's the issue? Is the sale not going to happen? No, it's all moving in the right direction. It just takes time. It takes time. The last report that I saw was that the NFL has told the owners to be ready between the window of July 20 and August 8 for a special meeting at which they would they would approve the purchase of the commanders by Josh Harris. My one concern, though, is given that there's some financial irregularities, nothing illegal by any means, just things that would require the NFL to maybe soften some of its rules or Josh Harris to button up portions of the offer. I'd want the owner of the team that I root for to show up with all the money, be able to write the check for 100% of it, not put together a coalition of investors, not have to get approvals and, and wave magic wands and borrow against this and borrow against that. I want somebody who's got more than enough money to buy the team because then that person has more than enough money to run the team. That's the concern. If I'm a commander's fan that I have, given that it feels like we got a little scotch tape and glue holding this, this you know social studies experiment and project together before judging and you don't want it to just fall apart what happens after the sale is approved what occurs next will josh harris have the funds necessary to compete for free agents and make the team as good as it can be that would be that would be my concern uh, all right i think that's everything jc carm wants to know the latest on the brian flores lawsuit that's a good question i think that I think that uh, they're they're in the process of seeking appeal and or reconsideration of aspects of the order 
that puts some of the claims in arbitration and allows some of the claims to go to open court. And I think it was Flores' side that has tried to get reconsideration or appeal. And I remember there was an effort by some, some lawyers out there not connected to the case to try to explain to the judge how this process where the NFL presides over controversies involving the NFL's teams and the commissioner is ultimately responsible for the arbitration, how that is a hopeless and incurable conflict of interest because what, what's the commissioner going to do? Find against the teams? The commissioner doesn't want to find that these teams were engaged in racially discriminatory conduct. So they're still dealing with that very threshold issue more than a year into it. It was filed February 1 of 2022 for crying out loud. We're still waiting to get to the point where the case itself actually starts moving. So not much going on. Uh, okay, one one last one, one last one before we go. And this isn't funny. I don't know why I'm laughing, but we do have a bear around. We've shown the video on PFT Live. There was an occasion a week or so ago where my nephew's girlfriend came to pick him up and just kind of casually mentioned, oh, the bear was running around the front of the property. Like, no big deal. Like a rabbit is running around out there. John Ardell says, I kidded Mike about the graduation party and the bear that had visited his property a couple of weeks before. Then some poor guy in Arizona drinking his morning coffee got mauled to death by one. It's speculative, but odds are that bear had no fear of people for a reason. I, I saw the story because... It was a brown bear. No, it was a black bear, black bear, brown bear, black bear, two different types of bear that act differently when it comes to their potential threats against human. Black bears typically don't do what this bear did, where it mauled the guy who was sitting outside drinking his coffee. A neighbor tried to shoot and kill the bear. It was too late. The guy died. That is unusual behavior for a black bear. The black bear typically stays away from humans unless there's something that causes the black bear to act out of character. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be the exception to that rule. There are plenty of rules out there that I like to be the exception to. I have no desire to be the exception to the rule that the brown bear or the black bear, I keep getting that wrong, the black bear, which bear is best? Uh, the black bear would, uh, would act differently with me. I was down in the barn last night and it was funny because our, our four-wheeler that I take back and forth to the barn from the houses and the shops. So I really wanted to go to the barn last night and do some writing and have a cigar and have a couple of drinks. And I, I had my son come out to the gate at the top of the hill and like make a lot of noise and shine a flashlight around and check for the bear so I could sprint. And I did. I mean, relatively speaking, I sprinted as much as a 58-year-old body would sprint up the hill and it was kind of exhilarating because you never know where that bear is going to be. But uh, I I'm happy to say the bear was not sighted last night. Have not seen the bear. Got cameras all around the house. Now I check them from time to time. I want to see the bear and I don't want to see the bear. But if I definitely ever see the bear, I hope it's on camera and not face to face. And hopefully not while I'm sitting outside drinking my morning coffee. What a way to go. I guess if there is a way to go. You know, it's a nice morning. I'm having my coffee. And then it's just kind of lights out like it was for Tony Soprano when he was eating his onion rings. Although although uh, the way he went, probably a little more expedient than, uh, than when you find yourself on the wrong end of the mauling by a bear. On that happy note, that's it for today's edition of PM. I'm sorry. I, I mean, look, it's a serious issue. It is, you know, we're fortunate that we live in a country where there aren't many animals out there 
that are capable of killing us. We have snakes, poisonous snakes, but but even then you got a pretty good chance if you can get to, you know, the appropriate medical provider to get the the antidote for the venom. You've got bears and you've got mountain lions. Other than that, we don't have a whole lot to worry about. But if a bear's around, you definitely have something to worry about. So I'm going to stay indoors for the rest of the day, and we'll do this again tomorrow. Thanks, as always, for some of your time. Check us out around the clock at profootballtalk.com, and have a great rest of your Wednesday. and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.